Coming up at 5.30 this evening, there is going to be at uh, City Hall a, a informational session regarding some of the code changes that the Planning Commission has been working on over the past, I don't know, year plus. Yeah, it's with the Planning Commission, it's been about six, eight months uh, and they've been working really diligently with the city council, too, so in work sessions with the both of them. All right. Joining me now, Kelly Weiss, oh, yes. of course, and, of course, Wendy Farley-Campbell. Uh, both have uh, extensive knowledge on this because they've both been involved in it since uh, the get-go. What sort of changes are happening in this? So it's been 29 years since we've had some code updates, or, or at least uh, to this magnitude, some code updates. What are some of the specific things that you're going to address this evening, Wendy? One of the things that is probably the most significant is increasing the types of housing that will be allowed within residential neighborhoods. So it's increasing the opportunities for different types of housing styles that were not envisioned and it was actually 39 years ago. Well, 39. Oh, yeah. it's almost 40 so, years. That's right. Yeah. In a planning world, that's back when the world was tracked housing. You had big apartment complexes and, you know, a duplex sprinkled in here or there. So this will look at opportunities for townhomes, cluster developments, where you just own a little tiny little postage stamp of a, of a space shared with other folks, triplexes, quads. Well, I mean, even, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't. In fact, even probably two years ago, maybe three years ago, we didn't have a term ADU. I still I still use that term out in public. So I'm going to build an ADU on my property. I'm just like, what's that? You know. So it's it's also a change in nomenclature. It's a change the way we talk about the housing industry as well, isn't it? True. We'll still put things in there to lead people to what they mean: mother-in-law cottage, granny flat, things right. like that. Yeah, yes. that'll be that'll be very helpful for a lot of people. Um, now this is not uh, this is not necessarily a session where people can come in and uh, complain about you know you know the neighborhood changing or that because you guys have already had many many meetings um, going through a lot of this information so this is more of about this is kind of where we are now is that correct absolutely so this is a chance for people to come and ask questions and figure out what it means for them or just get the broad overview of what these code changes are about we're going to actually have a public hearing with the city council and the planning commission on november 18th so if people have comments about it that they want the planning commission and the city council to hear that's when they come to that formal public hearing but there's actually been my goodness, these went through the um, Community and Economic Development Committee back in like December, January. And then we've had four um, work sessions with the City Council and the Planning Commission. And we had an open house in the spring. So these are at the tail end of the process to get them through. And it's been a good year and a half. So if questions do arise at this meeting tonight, is there time to to be able to look at that and see if any further changes need to be made before the public hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody, um, so we're going to give a general presentation, about 20 minutes, just about the code changes in general. And then it's just a chance for people to come and ask questions about their specific property or their specific thoughts. And we can dive into the details on on their, their home or their lot or whatever it is. And then they can have a really good understanding of what it means to them and then come prepared if they do have comments at the November 18th public hearing. 
Now, I know in some areas of, of the downtown area, and I say downtown, I, I think there's another term for it because it includes property on the uh, west side of Highway 101. There are some small sliver properties yeah. that in the past you know, weren't really effective for building. Is that going to, is that going to bring these more into a usable space? Yeah, I mean, ultimately what the goal was with this was to create more buildable lots and make it easier for people to do infill development and easier to do, you know, non-traditional subdivisions, basically. So that is one of the things that we included, those being able to have a method for people to develop those, those smaller skinny lots. Yeah, anywhere in town, yeah. not even just the old town, right. downtown. Well, Wendy, has the city looked at how the overall look of the town is going to be affected by the the more dense population or the more dense housing units or is that not is that not really a concern as far as you know the overall look and feel so look and feel we are addressing look and feel through a couple of ways the new uses the cluster development and then the triplexes and quads will have design standards so they need to, when in Rome, be in Rome and look like your neighborhood for right. the most part. There are, they will have design standards. Now, residential homes do not have design standards, but we are looking to assign some to those other uses so that they fit more with the character of their neighborhood. Well, you do have some color standards in there. I happen to know that personally. <laughs> we do. For certain areas of town, yeah. some of those people are really fortunate to, to have some color standards. Also, multifamily dwellings are... We're establishing very specific code for them. We've always processed them as commercial uses with regards to architectural design standards. So they will have their own very specific standards that apply to them now. And some other things that have to do with how something looks is you may want, the code may allow you to do something on your lot, put in a quad, for instance, because you have a large enough lot to do so. But if the utilities that are in the along your street are not sufficiently sized and you're not willing to make those upgrades to include that then you wouldn't be able to do that type of a use that is in a way how you judge work what can with, be put in there exactly yeah. and that will drive what things look like in your neighborhood if, if the infrastructure wasn't put in to support that type of use then the infrastructure will need to be improved upon by the developer and that's a possibility. Or, I mean, they, they sure. if they want to spend the money, they can they can do that. Uh, although I, I imagine that some of that involves probably ripping up streets and, and getting in there. So it's probably a it costly does. thing. It does. And in my experience, it's not a real favorable option to a lot of developers. So. Yeah, because that extra cost means they have to get more for. And, and that's not necessarily – when you look at a house and you figure square footage, price per foot, you don't necessarily consider those uh, upgrades uh, in that price. So that's correct. Hard. But it's something that at least it's an opportunity for them. And it's Absolutely. just something that you need to analyze that return on investment. Is that worth it for that particular property? I guess it depends on how, how long term of an investment mm -hmm. they want to make. Because over time, they'll certainly make that back. It's just a matter of whether it's a quick, you know, in and out. Yeah. That's a different story altogether. Absolutely. Things like um, one of the meetings I went to talked about the height versus the, the, the peak height of the house versus – um, the current standards. How, mu how much is that changing? Presently, our code is 28 feet is the height, and that's measured to the middle of a gable. So if you're thinking about a peaked roof, we're talking about the middle of that peak, not the top of the peak. And over 
many, many years, this has been inconsistently applied depending on whether you're looking at building code or land use code or going to a public hearing. We're standardizing it so that it's tippy tippy top, as one planning commissioner would have said, so that they know exactly how tall something is. That's what the layperson, whenever they're thinking about how tall something is, they're thinking tippy tippy top, mm-hmm. not middle of a gable. So we're changing our definition to be that. And then we also to allow more diversity in the roof pitch types that contractors are wanting to put in. Maybe they want to put a loft in. Uh, they've just not been able to do so with the current limitations on that on that building height. And so measuring tippy-tippy-top and then increasing the building height to 34 feet will give them that opportunity then to put in a loft space for additional bedroom space or an accessory dwelling unit internally, whatever. I know I, I in my lifetime, and I don't know if this is a good thing, but I've been on a lot of roofs, um, but the roof on my house is so, so... I get, was it a 12-1 or I don't know, I don't even know how to figure it, but I can't even get to the peak of the roof without, you know, fearing for my life yeah, because, yes. you know, you kind of side. so so that'll be a little bit of a change there, right? They'll be able to do a little bit different mm-hmm. things with that. Yes, they'll be able to go flatter or go steeper just depending on the design, the architectural design of the particular structure. It will not provide the opportunity to go three-story in a medium density, you know, typical subdivision They'll be able to go two and a half, but not three. And because we're not going to allow flat roofs, that is one of the proposals is to not allow flat roofs in medium density neighborhoods um, or low density neighborhoods. But for high density, where you might would see apartments and expect that type of development, yeah, they will be able to do three story with that with a flat roof. Do the code changes address any of the uh, the new findings on far as far as tsunami earthquake? stuff like that because that wasn't really an issue 40 years ago either or is or is this just something more of a architectural design um, change yeah, we're not looking at tsunamis with this code change that already happened um, and certain areas are already have limitations on them for the number of units you can have if you're in a tsunami zone the high tsunami zone and those we're not proposing any changes to that. Now, if we're all of a sudden allowing a higher density in a zone that happens to be in a tsunami zone, then they may be regulated with regards to the standards that are already in place. Is there any um, is there anything that will affect, um, say, modular housing or you know uh, mobile homes or anything like that uh, in in the code changes with regard to typical mobile home? parks and manufactured home subdivisions like Florentine, there are no changes being proposed that affect the ability for manufactured homes to locate. That That's a state law that's required to permit those opportunities. Mobile homes, uh, the same standards apply as what have in the past. We will be looking at these standards here coming up with our round two, which this is just round one. We'll be looking at transitional housing uh, coming up and be looking at those those codes that we've also had in place for a very, very long time. The state standards have changed a little bit with regards to that and be getting our code up to place with those state standards. Well, I guess what I'm curious is is that if someone had a piece of property and said, okay, I want to put a mobile home park in there, is that still something that could happen? It depends on the zoning. We're not changing where, where it is. It's, we're not changing where those can happen. Mm-hmm. Presently, they're, they're pretty limited to 
opportunities for those types of developments. That is one of the challenges with this the state law and bringing our code into into standards is that that is something that needs to be looked at. There needs to be more opportunities for mobile homes in other districts, and presently our code doesn't provide that opportunity, and that does not meet state law. So we will be changing that in the future. Now, I, uh, forgive me because I forgot the, the change of the name, but it was NEDCO. Um, is there an opportunity for, say, more more smaller home developments where you have cluster homes for tiny homes or, yeah. or stuff like that? Yeah, so the new name is Dev Northwest. That's right. Yeah, so they combined with Willamette Neighborhood Housing Services, so they have a whole new name. Uh, but yeah, this code is is setting a criteria and a process for cluster housing developments. So it's making it much easier for the developers to come in and think about those outside the box type of developments. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, that's the whole point of these code updates is to make it easier for somebody to come in and develop w- the different types of housing that we need. Because when we went through our um, housing and economic opportunities project a year and a half ago, it was determined that we need housing, which, of course, at the whole community knows this. Um, but we have the data to back that up now and that we're able to show our work and go through this process and update all of these codes. And really, I mean, it's not it's not sexy, so to speak, but it's, it's being able to have those developers know exactly what they're needing to do, have the code clear and objective, so they can be able to figure out their return on investment and then come in and apply uh, right now, a lot of the time, they have to come in and ask the Planning Commission for a, a PUD, a planned unit development, to see if they can even make a project work. And by that time, they've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on architecture and, and that um, without even knowing if they're going to be able to make that project pencil. So really, that's nuts and bolts of what we're trying to do is make it much easier for someone to come in and develop. Well, and there are so many more options than in the day when you either had a home or you had a mobile home. Yeah. You know, and, and a tiny home um, community can probably house more people in more comfortable surroundings with a home they own than, say, a mobile home park could. Yeah. They could even – the density would be even better in a nicer environment. So we, don't, we didn't have that option way back when, 40 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some really neat developments happening all throughout the state. And I think, and I'm biased, but I think this Dev Northwest one will be a really wonderful um, development for our community and show how you can kind of have that affordable housing and have it still really look nice and be a nice quality of life for people. There is a a development in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which uh, took a large piece of property with a lake on it and everything and and made a tiny home community in that. And they even have stores and everything in, in the same shape, like tiny home stores yeah. and stuff. And it really, it has gone from maybe, I don't know, I think a dozen people that were initially living in there to now, I think over a hundred yeah. that are in this development. And it really, it just sort of brings that sense of community back again, which a lot of a lot of places have lost because we've kind of gone our own way. It's almost like we're going back to like the yep. 40s or the that's 30s exactly. when that's when they were developing those smaller cottage homes or the um, oh what's the name of those apartment complexes with the with the um, communal space in the middle. Anyway, garden so we're, apartments, garden style, yeah, mm-hmm. brown brownstone, mm-hmm. even opportunities like Sesame Street, you know, yeah. like where yeah. you might actually yeah, New know York people. Is, yeah, like, yeah. But anyway, so it's it's creating that more communal living that people are really 
wanting. They're wanting to be able to walk to to the library and walk to the park and be able to like see their neighbor across the way and wave. And that's not to say that every every development not from here on out is going to be that way. We're going to have plenty of single family development still because that's still something that people want. But we want to have the ability for people to have whatever kind of housing that makes sense for them economically as well as just for the quality of life they want. Well, and in a sense, even though it's a 10-year plan, this development that's going across uh, from Fred Meyer Mm -hmm. will also have a similar feel because it'll have retail spaces, it'll have living spaces, apartments, it'll have, you know, little homes. So it's it's really kind of, you know, other people are thinking about it just than the city of Florence. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, uh, tell me the specifics about the meeting this evening. Then it's at five thirty. Yep. City Hall. Five thirty. The main meeting. City Hall, Hall in the in the City Council chambers. We're going to have a little little presentation from staff, just an opportunity um, to give an overview of the project, and then break it up into questions. We'll have question and answer for people who want to ask the whole group, and then just break up and let people ask staff specifically about their particular questions for their property or whatever it is they're they're wanting to know. All right. Wendy Farley-Campbell, Kelly Weiss, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Coming up next on the November edition of Our Town, we're going to talk some safety issues and what you can and can't tell parents. I'll be speaking with Sayuslaw School Superintendent, Andrew Grizz-Koyak, the Sayuslaw High School Principal, Carrie Tatum, and Sayuslaw School Board President, Guy Rosenbaum. Right after this, on the November edition of Our Town. Joining me in the studio now is Sayusa High School Principal Carrie Tatum, the Superintendent of Schools, uh, Andy Grisk-Koyak, and Guy Rosenbaum, who is the uh, head of the school board. And uh, thank you for joining me here today. Oh, no problem, George. Great to be with you. So the reason I asked you guys to to come in here and talk was um, a week or so ago, we had an, an incident on a bus that involved a student and other students on the bus, obviously. And it, it started um, an uproar with a, a certain group of people wanting to know what the heck is going on. And I, I was thinking about this and realizing that, you know, as a, as a parent or having been a parent myself, yeah, we sometimes want to know everything that's going on. But for the safety of students and the safety of people involved in that and the regulations that are out there, it's not necessarily something that we can know everything that's going on, especially if there's an investigation involved. So let's talk about some of the some of the rules and regulations, some of the things that that parents need to know when it comes to um, state and federal regulations when it involves school and students. Andy. From time to time, stuff like this comes up. Correct. It, it has to be dealt with. What are some of the biggest concerns that you hear from parents when they can't necessarily know all the details? Well, again, it's the, the details they want that would satisfy kind of their inner monologue. People sometimes kind of work themselves into a little bit of a lather with what if, what if, what if. And... What it boils down to for us is that if there was a direct threat to an individual or a group of students or a a credible threat to, again, a building or institution or whatever, those people that are involved that were, you know, in essence, targets of the threat, they would be identified directly. Now, if a student makes a hyperbolic statement or a statement about, 
potential self-harm, those details can't be given out as we're kind of running down all the details, especially in a smaller town, because any of those details make the students self-identifiable, make them, make them identifiable. And so when we identify a student for a discipline concern or a mental health concern or some other academic piece, then we wind up violating, you know, the Federal Education Rights Privacy Act. And so we'll tell somebody positively if, you know, student A threatens student B. But if student A just makes a statement and says, I'm just going to get everybody, and we look into it and the police determine that they don't have the capacity or means to pull it off, it ends there because, again, getting into the details about that makes that student identifiable. Right, and people, people, and people will go. Oh, I think that was so and so, or I think that was so and so. You, you automatically jump to those right. conclusions, and we get into this thing where people want us to confirm rumor and gossip, and we just can't do it. Right. They'll come to me and say, "I heard this happen," and I'll just say, "No, that you have the details wrong." Well, what are the details? I can't give you the details, but I'll tell you, if it was something that directly impacted you or the safety of your child, you would be told directly. Mm. Period. Now, Carrie, you can speak as the principal probably to this better than than anybody because dealing with the students on a regular basis. But the teenage brain is sort of one of those fly off the handle making comments. We've all done it, I think, as kids, you know, and so there's not necessarily always credibility into something we say. We get mad, we get upset, we throw out something that is really kind of uh, potentially harmless, although it, it causes uh, like the hairs on the back of your head sometimes to stand up. So it, as an as a educator, how do you deal with st- stuff like that? I think first and foremost, we try to, again, educate. You know, there are certain things that we just can't say in this day and age. And um, even if you're frustrated, even if everything is going wrong in that day, you still have to be careful and be held accountable to what you say. And so when when students make a, a statement that, you know, could be seen as worrisome, um, we definitely want to educate them. And do you realize what you said and how that can be taken? And, you know, we try to have those kind of conversations with the students and, and just make sure that they know that what they're saying is serious and, and how it affects others. Guy... Um... Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of quell, quelling the the uproar that, that comes out of this when when a parent wants to know something. I, I remember in the day, I mean, I went to private school my entire life. There was nothing for the nun to come up and grab you by the ear and yank you out of the room. And everybody at that point knew what was going on. And it's a, it's a little bit different nowadays uh, with rules and regulations. What, what does the school board deal with when it comes to stuff like that? So it's funny. I went to a uh, public Texas school in West Texas, and uh, we didn't have nuns, but the same thing happened there right. as well. Uh, it's it's a little different for the board. The board's really not treated a whole lot differently than uh, than parents because at the end of the day, we may have to adjudicate whatever actions the school has taken or if the child's parents want to bring the matter all the way through a complaint process to the board. So we try to keep the board, <clears throat> um, I mean, we try to keep them informed. Uh, Andy and uh, the other professionals at the school do a great job of that. And as far as, you know, basically what happened we're rarely ever more informed than the 
the public on on what's going on. And, and we don't really want to be because, again, this may come before the board to uh, to, to be adjudicated in a, possibly an expulsion case or something along those lines. So it's sort of like one of those things where it's like uh, you have to you have to move the uh, the uh, court case to a different county to uh, to get uh, unbiased. Yeah. And, and remember, as board members, we're just. Uh, you know, we're just, just community you guys. Yeah, yeah, we're just community guys. You know, that are that are trying to help out the school as much as we can. So a lot of us have kids in the school that could possibly be part of the complaint as well. And so you, you spend a lot of time as a board member thinking, okay, what do I know, and do I possibly need to recuse myself from this case? We have seven board members. We need four to make a quorum. And you could see that, you know, if enough of us had to recuse ourselves, we wouldn't be able to adjudicate a case. And uh, the the representation for the community wouldn't be there at the school. It's so, sort of, again, so, again, we try to be careful about that. It's sort of like in news where we talk about you don't you never want to be the headline in your own story. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. you have to you have to make sure that your ducks are in a row. Absolutely. At the same time, we we want to be responsive to the community. We want the community to know and understand. And and this is where it gets really interesting as a board member. It, this is my second term. And it took me every bit of my fourth term to become as limited limited in my education of how a school works as I am now. Um, it's, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. These two are professionals in the education of our children, and there's a lot to that. I mean, there's lots of regulations, lots of laws. There's lots of, of areas that, that are, frankly, places where you could trip up really bad. So the school takes the, the, the thought process of safety first, right? We want all the kids to be safe right? Then facts next. And sometimes communication's third. Uh, it's unfortunate, but if it was your student who made um, an unwise remark, I'm sure in a town of 8,000 people, you wouldn't want that getting out. Uh, and and I hope that the folks in, in uh, Florence can, can understand that we're just trying to do the best for all the students that we can do, uh, the ones that make mistakes and the ones that may be suffering because of the mistakes as well. And again, a child or a, a teenager might make a mistake that, if handled correctly, can, can make the outcome of their education and their life experience even better. Absolutely. Handled wrongly, and it could be the spiral that, that takes them out. Devastate, absolutely devastate. And again, in a, in a smaller town, it, it's it's even more important. But it doesn't change whether you're in Portland, Seattle, or anywhere else. The laws that affect this are the same, and they're there for the same reason. They're there to protect all the students. Again, if there's a safety concern, you can bet the school's on top of it right now. Uh, after the safety concern has gone away, there's a okay, what actually happened? And and again, you know, students are no different than any other group of human beings. Even though they're all honestly telling you their story, the story's different by almost every one of them. And it takes a while to figure things out. And oftentimes we have to wait for the police to, to help us figure things out. Now, when it comes to specific uh, regulations, um, and Carrie, maybe you can speak to this, uh, what, what rights and what privacies are, are available for kids or regulated for kids to keep them safe? I mean, you know, there's certain state rules, federal rules that you guys have to um, support on a regular basis to keep kids safe. What are what are some of the things when it comes to what we can know, what we can't know? Um, I mean, I think the biggest one is, is FERPA, which is the Family, 
Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, that tells us that we are not allowed to disclose educational records, discipline records, attendance records, um, that kind of information. And so really, I can't get into specifics about a student. So when, when asked about a situation, I can talk in generalities, but I can't you know, I, I just I can't discuss specifics. And a lot of times that's what some of the people in the community are wanting. Well, I want to know what happened to that kid or this is happening to my kid. What happened to the other kid? I can't tell them. And so a lot of times that's when they get the most frustrated because then they feel that their kid may be being treated unfairly or or. A lot of times the kids are the ones telling what happened. And, you know, when something happens to me, a lot of times um, or or people in general, they like to downplay what happened. And so then they're listening to a kid that may not be completely honest about their consequences. Oh, yeah, nothing happened to me. Well, that may not be accurate. Right. However, that's what's being reported. And, and then, you know that kind of gets around and and whatnot, and and it it causes frustration. Well, you bring up an important point that students themselves may be in the midst of seeing what's going on. What kind of of, um, restrictions are they put under legally to talk about incidents like that? Kids aren't really put under any sort of restriction so, uh, so a kid sees something in school, he can go home and tell his parent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then get the parent in a lather or, or right. not. Or, but what we yeah. usually ask kids, especially if we have like a student safety concern, it's like we tell them, we go, hey, gossiping about this isn't going to do him, you, or anybody else any good. Right. I mean, your parents want to know the details. Give them the details. If the parents want to call us, we can tell them what we can tell them. But, again, just keeping that chain going of, well, they did this, so it means this, and right. and then it spins out of control. And so, yeah, we regularly tell kids. We tell. I even tell staff, "Hey, we've got a discipline situation going on with a kid. It's getting resolved. In the meantime, yeah, questions go to administration, but don't speculate." Right. Well, and one other thing that we tell the kids is, you know, during any disciplinary incident, the admin, the teachers, they're not going to be talking about it. So when details come out it's generally from the kids or their parents. And so when someone has a disciplinary issue that you know they're embarrassed of or ashamed of, we do tell them, it's like, any information about this is going to be coming from you. So you, you, know, you need to not talk about it if you don't want it to get out. Because again, Florence is a small town and everybody assumes that they know a little bit more than they do and unfortunately have no problem spreading that. Well, and again, we, I think Probably all of us have played the game where I whisper in Andy's ear something yes. and you pass it on down. And after about 10 people, it's not the same story that I told in the first place. Well, and that absolutely happened this time. And, you know, when I provided all the information to Andy and Andy shared the information, um, again, I'm really proud of how we handled this situation. We ensured that students were safe. I mean, we we were dealing with three different organizations. We had the school district, we had Florence Police Department, and we had Lane County Sheriff's Office. And within minutes, all three of of those people were notified. We ensured um, student safety. And everywhere along the line throughout last week, that was our main goal. So again, communication, I think that that's one of the things that people are frustrated about, but at no time was student safety in question because we were ensuring that. And so unfortunately, communication didn't happen the way people wanted it to, 
But that's because there were student safety concerns that were taking priority. And, you know, in, in some of our jobs, I might have 100 things on, on my to-do list, and I'm trying to prioritize them at all, all times. And student safety is always my number one priority. And I think the, the follow-up to this is that you sent out the memo yesterday to the parents of the kids that were on the bus with the correct information. Those are the people that were either Directly impacted – or inconvenienced by the delay of the bus, they now have the information they need that can be legally shared. And it took a week to get down to all the details. And there's still a few pieces that we're going to wrap up today and tomorrow, uh, but they're not directly relevant to student safety. There are some procedural pieces. Well, and again, it's, it's, it's dealing with the what is, not the what ifs. Right. You know, I mean, because like you said, you know, well, that could have been disastrous, but it wasn't. Right. You know, that could have been, you know, a wreck, but it wasn't. So uh, people looking at the positive aspect of it of, you know, hey, everyone got out safe, right? I mean, that's Correct. that's, that's, that's yeah. the assumption there. Um, and when the information was available, it got out. And I know, I understand the frustration of parents. Having been one, having been a kid who caused my parents much frustration <laughs> myself, you know, they, yeah. they would like, you know, they would like to know because... Well, for one thing, it's the human curiosity, too. It's right. not just being a parent. It's it's like, you know, oh, I want to know what's going on. Being in news, I always want to know what's going on. I often realize that I can't always know everything that's going on. So, all right. Um, is there anything else that we need to, to hit on, on not just this point, but general uh, information that can be doled out or not doled out? Um, when it comes to a threat of violence, obviously, the police are called in, right? Right. So that's something that's done there. Um, but there's other disciplinary actions that may be handled by staff that are not necessarily violence related. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As you know, you look at what a student says and then you look at it. Is it a, a direct threat to them? Is it a direct threat to someone else? Or is it so vague that there's nothing credible to it on the surface, but you mm -hmm. still go in and you get all the details because, again, it's that hyperbolic statement a kid makes, and somebody overhears it, they repeat it, and then, oh, there's concern. But in the meantime, we're running down to see, did they really mean it, and do they have the capacity to act on it? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say every time that we've run these down, we don't have, you know, we don't have these kids that have the capacity. Or it was like, I, they'll say, I was mad. I was just blowing off steam, and I said it, and I didn't mean it. You know, mm -hmm. and... You know, it's been – I've been here since the dawn of dirt. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in the past we've had kids that have been a legitimate threat to themselves and others. But those are so rare. Mm -hmm. But because rare things in the past have been overlooked in other districts and out of state, we've run down the details on everything. Um, and I just kind of think about after the, the big shooting in Florida a couple years ago, um, I think people's internal fears got the best of them. And we had, you know, five or six kids where people said, ooh, well, they fit this profile. They said this. Then you get into it and you get down the details. It's like they don't know. They don't meet this criteria that you had in your head. Kid went and said something stupid or you interpreted something from that. But we still ran through the process. Mm -hmm. and, you know, some kids spend a day or two out of school and they go, oh, no, I could actually see why you wanted to talk to me, why you wanted to go through and do this, because 
in the context of what was happening, it's, you know, it really caused some people some alarm. Well, and we never want to ignore something like that. And then something horrible ends up happening. So we treat every single thing like that seriously. And, you know, it's reported and it's investigated and um, we put safety plans in place if needed. And, you know, I mean, we never want that to happen in Florence. And and so many times you hear on the news when something like that happens, you go, oh, well, not in our little town, you know. Right. And you just, you know, you just have no, to be it's, on top it's, of it. It's your little town. It's your big town. Yeah. But again, if you bring the information to the right person that can do something with it, we're going to track down the details to make sure there there isn't anything legitimate behind it. And you may bring me something, but I can't not necessarily tell you the resolution to it. Right. But if somebody else was again, you tell me student A threatened student B, and I hear and I can confirm that student A did do that and has the capacity to cause harm to student B, I'm going to call student B and their parents and let them know student A is a threat and we're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Because they may also have some legal recourse outside of the school. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being here. I hope, uh, I hope we get the information out on, uh, you know, how things kind of roll. You know, we can't talk about everything, but we talk about things we can. You bet. I'd like to just add that, you know, this is the community school, and we welcome the community's involvement in all aspects of the school. Um, I encourage parents and citizens to, to read through the policies. They're online and available at the Sayasaw School District. We have a policy committee that's made up of board members and community members and students that help set all of the policies that we're talking about, as well as the, the federal policies that come down from above. Um, and again, get involved because we could use your help. Guy Rosenbaum, Kerry Tatum. Andy Griscoyak, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up next on the November edition of Our Town, he was a naval officer. Now he's cycling across America on about a 5,500-mile journey to bring awareness to the plights of the first responders, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll be speaking with Mark Gutierrez right after this. Passing through our town today is former combat veteran, Navy Special Operations, Mark Gutierrez. Now, he is working with Project Hero. And, Mark, tell me a little bit about Project Hero. Uh, Project Hero is a nonprofit that benefits uh, first responders and military veterans that are struggling with traumatic brain injury and PTSD. And they use bicycling as a form of recreational therapy to give them a sense of community and to help them get their lives back. Just that little bit of freedom being on the bike can make a difference. Now, you spend a few tours in Iraq and Afghanistan? I've done a couple tours in Iraq, a couple tours in Afghanistan, yeah. What was your specialist? Uh, I, I diffused explosive booby traps and uh, rendered safe roadside IEDs. Yikes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My son was in Iraq, and he was in a convoy that got hit right ahead of him. And luckily, there was no major damage done there. But as soon as the convoy stopped... There was firefighter and all this stuff. And he was the only one when they came back and did the the, um, the re-interviews when they come back in. Uh, he was the only one that didn't have it. No. And that was really kind of strange that he didn't have any PTSD associated with it. But everybody else in his unit was severely um, bothered by the event that happened there. Yeah. So. 
I know a lot of a lot of military, you know, experience things that we don't even necessarily know what's going on. Sometimes. Yeah, and every every individual has a has a threshold. Uh, I think the thing that I really like about Project Hero is that they put an emphasis on the first responders and that they're susceptible to it as well. You know, as a as a combat vet, I do get to come home and have a bit of reprieve. First responders, I mean, they typically work a long career. They stay in the same area of operations, and so they never actually. I uh, get to come home the way I got right. to come home. They're always on duty and they never hear thank you, especially the police. Yeah. So that's, I think that's part of the reason which made me really lean towards project hero was putting an emphasis on the, on the, the people that take care of our communities and the local level. That's true. I, a friend of mine is, is with the Western lane ambulance and he just did put something on Facebook the other day about how, you know, it's constant, you know, and, mm. and, and they deal with, not only with being a first responder, but sometimes you come on a, an accident or something with somebody you know. Yeah, exa- you know, exactly. A family member or a friend or something like that. And, so and that's difficult. and that's the that's the same as being on a platoon. And so the the parallels are really really striking there. Of so especially in these small towns, going out on a call and as someone you know, someone you love, or someone that you're at least familiar with, and then you have to you have to respond to that trauma and that sort. So. so you're on you're on a about a five thousand mile trek now. Where where are you going? Where, <laughs> or is it going to be longer than that by the time? Uh, so I think I'm right around five thousand right now. Oh, I think your town brought me to five thousand. So you're not uh, done yet. So I'm not done yet. I'll keep on going down to San Diego, making stops like this along the way, stopping at police stations and fire stations, just talking about Project Hero, but also giving a message of gratitude all the way down. Down the coast. Once I get to San Diego, then I guess I have to figure my life out because I don't have much of a plan after that. <laughs> now, is there is there a plan to maybe do a, a group cycling event? Uh, I know you said that they use bicycling sort of as sort of their therapy too. Yep. But is there a plan to do like a group event, getting a bunch of guys and girls together? Uh, f- for my ride, we've tried it in other places. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Project Hero has hubs across the country where they do group rides. They actually just did the California Challenge, uh, which I think was Santa Cruz beyond Santa Barbara. Uh, so it was a multi-day ride where they went down the, the California coast. And there was hopes that I would be able to to be there on time. But uh, <laughs> I also want to enjoy the ride. <laughs> Don't want to just crush it just to get somewhere. So you came from Newport last night. Where were you before that? Oh man, Lincoln, Lincoln City. I mean, you can Lincoln City. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I've got a, a, a young friend of mine who's in college, and he he cycles everywhere. And he came one time. He came from Portland to here to visit um, in a day, and I was like, whoa. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a long ride. It's fun, though. I mean, you're not racing. That's the big thing is that I typically average between 10 and 12 miles an hour with these headwinds. It's a little bit bit less. But the point is, is just to keep moving forward. And and so it's not it's not you're not crushing it the whole ride. Well, when you come down 101 around the coastal areas and you see the waves hitting the shore. I mean, I guess that's kind of peaceful. Yeah, it is. Therapy it's, for you there. I mean, this this whole ride has been has been therapy for me of of getting out and and meeting people and and having time to myself. <laughs> so, how can people find out more about Project Hero? How can they donate? What can they do to help and and, and assist along the way? Uh, so, there is a donation page that'll take it right to my link. It's uh, tinyurl.com dot backslash. Uh, 
Gutierrez, my last name, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z, Hero. And that'll take it right to the donation page. Uh, and then we are projecthero.org is their, is their made page as well, where you can learn and see what they're doing, like the challenge ride that they just completed. Okay. And we'll, we'll put that up on our website too and uh, give folks the information. So uh, are you going to be stopping by the fire department today on your way through? or? or? Uh, so we try to coordinate something. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. In small towns, they, they tend to have smaller... Uh, Manning, uh, obviously, and so it's hard to coordinate something. But I've, I will swing by and usually just say hi. Yeah, you'll go right by it on the yep. way. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, beautiful fire station. Yeah, yeah, I passed it. <laughs> now, um, you're so next. Where do you where do you plan on making tonight? North Bend. North Bend. Is that right? <laughs> so that's, right. A, that's a good little ride. Yeah. yeah so. Well, Mark, thanks for showing up. I appreciate that, and good luck on your journeys there, and and bringing, you know, if not not just funds, but awareness to some of the the problems that folks deal with on a, on a regular basis, yeah. first responders, and of course, our military. Thank you for your service. Yeah, Thanks for having me, George. Appreciate it. Coming up in the next hour of Our Town, we'll be talking dune restoration with Andy Vibora and guest. I'll also be speaking with Lori Severance about the new mental health group that will be supporting Sayusa Valley Fire and Rescue, Florence Police, and the Western Lane Ambulance District. I'll also be talking with Alex Scarlatos. You might remember that name from the Paris train attacks that he and two of his friends thwarted a terrorist attack while he's running for Congress. All that and more in the next hour of Our Town. Joining me now in the studio is Lori Severance. Lori Severance is with Sayusaw Valley Fire and Rescue. She works for the community support team that is currently there. Recently, Lori, um, an influx of money has come through the county to kind of build on that support team. Tell me a little bit about that and and how that works into what we're already doing here in Florence. Okay. Um, there's been a team for about a year now working over at Peace Health. We've been meeting at Peace Health. It's a group of first responders and um social service agencies here in town. And we have been working to put together a proposal for a mobile mental health crisis team. It's something that's mandated in Lane County, and a lot of people have heard of CAHOOTS over in Eugene. Excellent program that's been established for 30-plus years. Um, And it's something that's lacking here. So we were looking at trying to put together that type of a program because this money was available. And um, there's a big problem here with we have a small emergency department, we have a small jail, and that's where people end up when they're in crisis. If police have to respond to a mental health crisis out in the community, if they can't be de-escalated quickly there at home, they typically end up a lot of times in the emergency department. And uh, that's not necessarily you know, what the people need. They need someone to lend a lend an ear, someone to provide services, someone to hook them up with what it is that they need. So the thought of this program is that we would be able to provide those services on site, you know, 24-7 as people need it in order to avoid, um, you know, unnecessary placement in the ER or in the county jail. Now, what are the issues though that comes up is the fact that we're talking about people that have had a crisis issue that was public or that was known by police or fire or or ambulance 
is there anything in this program that will will kind of help those that may not go through such a public crisis? At this point, no. Um, we will be dispatched by um, the police department, by um, dispatch, um, if someone calls in to 911 or if first responders respond to any kind of emergency in our community and then see a need for this kind of service, then they can contact us. But at this point, there's not like a hotline or there's there's no outpatient, you know, per se, services. Um, it was, it's basically based on when someone calls in or someone, a first responder in the, in the community identifies a crisis. I believe, and you correct me if I, I believe the amount was 300,000. Just under, Just yes. under 300,000. Mm-hmm. Yes. What does that money need to go to, to, to make this team work? Are, are there, are, is there facility stuff you need? Are there equipment? Is there vehicles? What is this money going to be? Because I understand this is a lot of this is volunteer, correct? Actually, it's now going to be a paid position. Paid, yes, okay. which is really nice. Um, yeah, it's now a paid position. We're going to get a vehicle, um, and there'll be no expense for that. It's going to come out of the, you know, the county pool through through uh, the police department. So that'll be separate um, from the amount of money. That yeah, there'll get. be no expense okay. connected with that. But there are some things, some equipment kinds of things we need to have set up. Mostly, what it's going to is. Some pay for the staff. They are also funding a full-time social worker in the emergency department at Peace Health so that when we go out weekends, middle of the night, someone needs specific services that aren't on call 24-7, which most of them aren't in our community, we send a referral to that emergency room social worker who will then call follow-up in the morning and get them hooked up with services. So that's a huge advantage for us is having that full-time person to kind of manage the parts that we can't accomplish after hours. Is there a need, too, for for volunteers in this program? Absolutely. What kind of background or what kind of – is it just a willingness to help or or is there certain – requirements that a person or certain things that a person needs to have in their in their skill set in order to to be a volunteer for a crisis management a little bit of both i mean the volunteer the the willingness to help of course is huge after hours middle of the night you might get calls at three in the morning in the rain you got to be willing to jump up and go um so that is something that's you know doesn't work for everybody but also in terms of skill set we're looking at people that have some kind of crisis management background some kind of counseling or social service background someone who can we provide pretty extensive training but um you know you have to be willing to work and and comfortable working in a non-traditional setting out on the street in someone's home um spur of the moment, good at assessing what's going on and what's needed, um, that kind of thing. So anyone with any kind of counseling background or, or social service background, we have some people with no background but are very eager and, and willing to be trained. So, And I notice sometimes you come across that person with none of that background that just knows what to say yes. at the right time. Yes. And that, I would imagine, is probably – a skill that you cannot teach necessarily. Right. right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So if someone if someone out there is listening and says, "Well, you know, I've I've been in a situation before where I've helped people," you know, that mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. be something to consider if mm-hmm. you're wanting to volunteer. We don't turn anyone away. We we look we'll at find everyone. Something for them to do, That's right. right. Yeah. We'll we'll uh, find something yeah. for them to do. So, what is the time frame for getting this program to 
to full um, full operation? Well, we the way the grant's written, we kind of have this first year to to kind of get up and running fully. But you know, we're we're going to be starting November one, kind of you know baby steps. Um, We've been doing some training with Cahoots over in Eugene. They're, they've been training us in their model, um, which is an excellent model. Um, we've had some trainers come in from California that just left last week. And um, so we're, we're hitting the training part of it pretty hard right now. Um, <clears throat> we have always responded to, you know, fires or sudden death, you know, medical emergencies, but this new mental health component is brand new. So we're, we're up and getting trained. Um, my background is in this kind of work. So um, the first 90 days at least, I will be going on calls with our people um, to kind of just help and do some, some further training and teaching. Um, but we're going to start taking calls. We're going to meet with the fire department, the police department, EMS, um, different agencies, let them know we're out there. This helps. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to letting people know we're out there and how we can be reached, what kinds of calls we respond to. And, um, you know, then we'll take it from there. Obviously, we've, uh, our community, for, for one reason or another, has been a community that has suffered a, a, a f- more than our fair share, I think, of probably suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, we've had some issues with that. Something in me, and, and I may be totally wrong, and, and we may have to cut this out if I, if I say it and you <laughs> like get shocked, look on your face. But something in me has always said that that person who really wants to commit suicide is going to do it. There's the kind that, that have a scream for help mm-hmm. that, you can, that you can help. Yes. And then there's the ones that that don't ever cry for help. They know what their plan is and, and they're going to follow it through. How do you, I guess if you respond to, you know, a potential suicide situation, that's probably one of those calls for help usually? Not always. Not I always. mean, sometimes family picks up on on cues, cues that, mm-hmm. that um, alert them and alarm them and they'll call us. Uh, but I think when someone is, I agree with you that when someone is set, intent, set, yeah. yes, on, on ending their life, that there's not a darn thing you're going to be able to do about that, to intervene with that. Um, however, most people that are suicidal and people who have made serious attempts that have been interviewed talk about this, that in reality, they wanted the pain to stop. They were in a lot of pain. They wanted the pain to stop, but they really didn't want to die. They just didn't see an mm-hmm. option in terms of getting the pain to stop. So, right, and, and we're not necessarily talking physical. We could be emotional pain. Oh, yeah, pain. absolutely. Yeah. Oftentimes it's mm-hmm. emotional pain. So if you can reach that person, and you know, a lot of times they'll talk about they don't feel like anyone cares. They think their family would be better off without them. Things that are not true, but in their their distorted thinking at that time, that's what they believe. So if you can get to one of those people who, you're right, oftentimes are not verbal about it and don't let people know, um, if we can identify them before they make a lethal attempt, then a lot of times you can you can help get them to where they need to be um, in terms of services and help and that kind of thing to Giving, giving giving them a different perspective of of what their life could be like you know yeah. if they if they get help yes yes and getting them the help right away that they need yeah absolutely but 
you know, when people talk about they don't really want to die, they just want uh, they just want the pain to stop, and they don't know how else to do it. So we, you know, if people notice signs and they let us know, they get us involved, or you know, get get them help in any form. Um, sometimes that can be prevented. Well, you know, there there are still compassionate people on this planet that are <laughs> that are willing to help people. You yes. might not recognize it sometimes because there's an influx of discompassionate people sometimes out there that we we hear more often about but this sounds like a great program um, for Western Lane County and I'm assuming you will pretty much take up wherever Saysaw Valley Fire covers and Western Lane Ambulance covers is that pretty much the territory? So the first year of the program um, because it is a pilot program we are only going to cover uh, Florence proper, okay. and that's because we have Florence PD to be there with us. Because we will be going out solo, mm-hmm. unlike Cahoots, who has a, a double team pr- uh, program. Since we'd be going out alone, there's always a safety issue. So the first responders, either police, EMS, or fire, would be on scene with us until we can assess enough that we realize it's a safe situation and they, they right. can move on. Uh, we don't have that kind of coverage in the county because, as we know, sheriff's department has yeah, to we, come over from Eugene. we got two guys sometimes. Here. Right, yeah. sometimes. And um, so a lot of times it's an hour or two hours before they can respond. So um, the first year, we're just going to cover Florence. Second year, they've actually uh, worked in uh, funding for an additional sheriff officer who would mostly just cover Western Lane County, help us on these calls, and be available for quick response. So at that point, we will expand out to Deadwood, Mapleton, you know, the the greater um, Western Lane County. Because I wonder, you know, I mean, if a critical situation comes up on the north side of a Cedar Beach Road, right. you know, I mean, that's county. Right. You know, right. and, and yes. it could be, it's like your, your next door neighbor, right. you're in the city and across the street, you know. Yes. And that must be difficult. Yes, you know. it is. Yeah. It's it's very unfortunate, you know. And, and if we can have, if first responders are out there and will stay with us, you know, that's one thing. But if, if it's outside of, like, police jurisdiction yeah. and it requires police response. Um, yeah, because fire and ambulance might be there as right, well right. without it being. A without it being in the police. city. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of the, the parameters of the program are going to kind of get defined as we go along because this is brand new to us. So this is how we have it defined at this time. And, um, you know, we'll see how things lay out. So, so does the program have an official name? The the uh, contract is has deemed it the mental health mobile crisis response. So it's M H M C R, but we're just I mean it's just it's under right. the community support team. Right. So it's it's a component of what we're doing now. It's a new component, um, but uh, C S T community support team is a lot easier to <laughs> to yeah. refer to. So. Lori Severance, thank you so much for your time and uh, keep doing thank what you're you. doing. Thank you. Next up, I'll be talking with Andy Verbore from Travel Lane County about the Dune Restoration Project, which has hit a few snags in recent times with some of the designations of endangered species that are now living in the dune grass.
Two guests in the studio with me now, Andy Vabor from Travel Lane County and Brian Saunders. We'll find out a little bit more about Brian in a minute here. But we're going to talk about the Dune Restoration Collaborative that's going on and been going on and work that's been going on in the dunes. Andy, what are some of the things that you can talk about that have happened over the past year? Well, we're really excited to be here and giving everybody an update on the Oregon Dunes Restoration Collaborative. Uh, just a little background, the collaborative started oh, some five years ago when the Forest Service brought together a, a really diverse group of uh, constituents. So we've got you know people from Oregon Wild, we've got people from Save the Riders Dunes, which are not two groups you would normally think about in the same sentence. Right. Um, we've got folks from the tribes, from elected officials, Forest Service, former Forest Service, and then just citizen volunteers folks like me from the hospitality industry who have all come together to really tackle this problem of invasive species out on the dunes. You know, taking us back a ways, at some point somebody thought, hey, let's plant some stuff here to keep the dunes, you know, not realizing that less of a heartbeat, but still the dunes are a living thing pretty much. I mean, you know. They are. There's over 400 species of wildlife that uh, exist on the dunes. And, and so, yeah, there, there were efforts made. And, and I think at the time, and we can probably see this throughout history in a lot of different situations right. where, you know, non-native uh, plants or animals are brought into an area with uh, unforeseen consequences. With good intentions. Good intentions. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the good intentions there were the, the natural ecosystem of the sand movement was messing with the infrastructure. It was covering Highway 101. It was, you know, filling up the jetties and, you know, covering the jetties and things like that. And so the government, and it even preceded them, but in kind of wholesale planting of uh, beach grass, uh, European beach grass, not the native uh, American beach grass, but European beach grass, um, which is very effective at stabilizing the dunes. And once it gets, uh, you know, started, then you get other plants that, that come in and uh, form along with it. And then eventually you have a forested area where you used to have moving sand. And over time, it's had the, the negative impact that they were hoping for. I mean, other than keeping sand off 101, I mean, yeah, still, but yet not, not what they had planned on. Yeah, this is the largest area of temperate coastal sand dunes in North America. So it's something very special, and we've lost about probably 75 to 80 percent of that open sand um, because of this movement of invasive species over the last um, six or seven decades. So that's why the collaborative came together. There is an urgent need. If we don't do something now in another generation or so, um, all of that open sand could be lost. Um, so we're really interested in preserving uh, what the good parts that we have left, the open areas, which are used for um, lots of different recreational purposes, um, hiking and camping and uh, just nature walks. Um, obviously, our OHV riders love those open areas to be able to ride in. So we have those designated open areas, which are great to preserve. Then we can do some very site-specific. Uh, that's our second goal is site-specific restoration projects. And then the third level is landscape restoration, where we really try to go in and knock down that foredune that has turned into basically a little shrubby forest and get that open sand moving uh, from the beach back inland the way it had in the past. So those were our three main goals of the collaborative that we've been working on. Uh, we kind of wrapped that up in a really nice coffee table book that's uh, available uh, from us and from folks like the Chamber of Commerce here in Florence. So we really encourage people to pick up one of those, learn about uh, the background of the dunes. And, uh, the and more importantly, what they can do to help. 
they exactly. get involved. Yeah, and, and how they can help is a number of different ways. You know, you know, if they're really interested, they can join the collaborative and, and work with us on one of the work groups uh, of the collaborative. We've got volunteer work parties that are going on regularly throughout the year. I know in looking at just last last fiscal year, and we go on a federal fiscal year that ended in September, um, almost 1,800 hours of volunteer time in the various work groups, but 1,300 of that in work parties, people going out and, you know, cutting down gorse and scotch broom, which is the typical work party. You can't go out and pull beach grass. It's not effective. Mm. Um, so we go out and cut down the gorse, pull out uh, the scotch broom where we can on the smaller plants or cut them down and just keep kind of beating that back. And so there's been really good success in some of these small pockets doing those uh, types of work groups. So introduce Brian to everybody now here and uh, tell a little bit about And then, Brian, you can obviously speak for yourself too. <laughs> yeah, Brian Saunders um, comes to us through the University of Oregon's RARE program, and I'll let him tell you what that acronym means because I usually mess it up. But uh, it's an AmeriCorps program uh, where participants um, work in rural areas around the state of Oregon. And last year we had uh, our first opportunity uh, through some Forest Service funds to uh, have a RARE participant be our outreach coordinator and that was a young man named Jeff Malik. And Jeff did a, a really nice job for us in, in really kind of working with all of our work groups. And this year we um, got a, a, a grant and some money from Lane County to fund the program again. And so we're excited to have uh, Brian here with us in that position. Now, Brian, you're from the East Coast. How long have you been out on the West Coast? I've been out on the West Coast for about Four weeks. Four weeks. So, yeah, uh, yeah you're, you're, you'll get a nice introduction to our winter weather. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what you're involved in then. Okay. So I am the communications and outreach coordinator for the Oregon Dunes Restoration Collaborative. And my job is to, you know, engage our volunteers, build capacity throughout the program. Um, and pretty much our main goal or my main goal this year is to facilitate the development of a three to five year strategic plan, which will really move us forward in the coming years. How... Uh, maybe this is a question for Andy, and but how how much how effective are the the work parties in in stemming the preponderance of of plant life that's out there? I, I'm trying to figure out how to say that. But. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the work party has been great. I mean, I've attended all of them that I've been here. I've uh, been in Oregon so far, but the work that we've done, um, the visual uh, photos that we've seen, is just absolutely insane. We've taken out acres of scotch broom and gorse over the course of a few years. So if we keep doing that over the time, um, we're getting some super big progress made. Yeah, just really not too far from here, the Hasita Dunes area is an area of five to 10 acres that they've been working on um, these hand work parties for the last several years um, and going out just a couple hours at a time and, and strategically cutting back the, the gorse and scotchman. If people know People over here probably know a lot more about it than most of us in the valley. But, um, you know, scotch broom in particular and those plants, you know, they, they reproduce pretty wildly in terms of the number of seeds. And so it's something that, you again, all of this you have to keep coming back. It's not like we're going to go in and just do it once and right. and uh, we're going to be done. So, But, yeah, there's, they've gotten some areas opened up and they're having really good success. And so those smaller plants are obviously easier. You can hand pull a lot of those. So getting those big ones cut down and, and uh, moved away is really important. 
So there's not there's not like a move to bring in larger equipment to try to unearth some of this stuff, or is that in certain areas maybe? Yeah, there is. There's kind of a multi-pronged approach. You know, these small work parties are, are you know, good in these little specific, site-specific areas. But to do that larger landscape restoration that we talked about, yeah, there's a number of tools that the, the Forest Service has in their toolbox, including herbicides. Um, so they go out and spray the grass, and they've had good success there because, again, if you can spray those grassy areas um, before the, the woody materials, the shrubs and the shore pines and other things get established, um, you're much better off. So herbicides, um, burning. So you'll see some burning. They have a little window here in the fall, although this fall has been a little different than the last few years. I'm not sure how much burning they got done with this early rain that we had, but burning is another effective tool in, in some of those areas. And then bringing in large equipment, bulldozers, excavators to, to really dig out that foredune and again, knock it back, uh, get those plants out of the way, get the sand moving again. And so that really ties to um, some work that the Forest Service has been doing with an environmental assessment. So, you know, we have this strategic plan that looked at the entire dunes area from north of Florence all the way down to north of Coos Bay and primarily in the dunes recreation area and uh, where we would apply these different goals. So where we go and do site-specific versus this landscape work. And so they have to go through an EA process anytime you're talking about doing big landscape work on Forest Service land, there's environmental impacts. And so that should be out... um, probably in the next couple of months. And we're in our meeting today going to hear a report from uh, the Forest Service on where they're at on that. And that's um, something that's really caused some concern for the collaborative. A lot of the areas that we identified in the strategic plan to do some of this work, um, we were surprised to find that there's uh, a coastal martin that's living on the dunes, an animal that normally would live in the forest, but was displaced from the forest as you know, development happened and other things. And then here, lo and behold, this nice little coastal forest that's been built up through this invasive process is a perfect habitat for this little coastal martin. So suddenly now we've got an endangered animal that's not really native and probably native to some level uh, Mm -hmm. along the the forest edge uh, of the dunes area. Um, living there. And so it's really a conundrum. Um, The Forest Service is leaning because that coastal martin is um, probably going to get listed on the endangered species list. They have to protect it then. They're forced to do that under the law. And yet it really curtails this landscape level work that we hope to do uh, along the dunes and get those natural processes moving and get more open sand. So it's this, you know, we're protecting the Martin at the expense of maybe hundreds of species of animals and plants that are native to the coastal sand dunes area. So uh, we're going to have a a robust discussion today, I think, with the collaborative and, and see how best to work with that. Um, I know it's it's frustrating for people who have been with the collaborative for many years working on that to hear that suddenly now a big part of our work plan has just been uh, put on the shelf. So it uh, doesn't mean there's not a lot of good areas to work in, preserve the best of what we already have in open sand and do some site-specific things. But we'll learn more and we'll talk about it. And I think it'll be a, an interesting topic and we'll see um, what our options are. All right. Is there anything, anything else you want to just touch on really quickly or is that pretty much get us to where we 
Well, I think the other thing is just working with the state and federal government. One of the things that we're working on, uh, we've had Senator Merkley's uh, chief of staff out on the dunes on a, on a field trip and uh, Congressman DeFazio, we just had him out last month. He was down speaking here at the Coastal Caucus here in Florence. And we had a chance to run him out on the dunes, talk to him and two of his aides, update them on the work. And again, uh, these folks are really supportive of the work. Um, DeFazio has a rich history of, you know, working to help name the John Dellenbach Trail and other kind of coastal um, conservation type issues. So he's familiar and he's supportive. And one of the things that we want to do is write appropriations language for Congress, get that in uh, the congressional language so that then uh, money can be applied to our work here. So that's one of the things that we'll also be working towards in, in the development of our strategic plan. All right. Well, thank you both for being here today. I appreciate it. And uh, give us an update if the something great comes out of the meeting or maybe if something no. doesn't. You know? <laughs> we will. We will. Yeah, I think as soon as the EA is uh, out, you know, we'll post that information on the, the website. Our website, again, is saveoregondunes.org. All right, uh, Brian Saunders and Andy Vapor, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Okay, and last but not least, I'll be speaking with Alex Scarlatos. He was on the Paris train that he and his two friends helped divert a terrorist attack or avert a terrorist attack. That'll be coming up in just a minute on the November edition of Our Town right after this. Joining me now is... Alec Scarlatis, and he is from Roseburg, Oregon. Yes. And uh, Alec, people might recognize your name. Just give us a brief, like, um, a little synopsis of, of how you came to the forefront, sort of, of uh, media attention. Well, after uh, deployment to Afghanistan, uh, me and two of my friends decided to tour Europe, and we were actually the three Americans that helped stop that terrorist attack on a train to Paris about four years ago. And then we wrote a book, and Clint Eastwood made it into a movie. So now you're going through Oregon talking to people about your run for Congress. Yes. So tell me a little bit about um, where you stand, some of, your, some of your points that you want people to know about you so that they can kind of get an idea of who you are. Well, probably my biggest three issues are the timber industry. I'd like to manage our forests to help prevent forest fires and reinvigorate the economy in Southern Oregon, especially, that's been on the decline since the early 90s. I'm, I'd like to see some revor reform in the VA system because I'm a veteran myself, and we have veterans killing themselves in VA parking lots and dying just because of wait times. I mean, I just don't think the government does a good job of medical care, especially if you look at how they run the DMV and the post office. It's just not a good idea. And then obviously I'm very pro-Second Amendment just due to the fact of my life experiences almost dying in the middle of a gun-free continent. And, I mean, I usually carry every day, and, of course, I couldn't there. And we almost died as a result. Um, and even six weeks after the terrorist attack, there was a shooting at my college, Umpqua Community College, and nine people were killed. And then shortly after that, um, my friend from the terrorist attack, Spencer, was stabbed, I think, five or six times in a bar in downtown Sacramento, and uh, he couldn't carry either because it was in California. So there's been a lot of experiences in my life that either could have been mitigated or people could have been saved if someone had carried a gun. Well, let's let's just hit the, the, the timber part first. Sure. 
Um, we are, because of federal regulations and, and even some Oregon stuff, we have really cut back on the amount of timber that we are, are pulling out of our forest now, even though it's a renewable resource. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that, you know, loggers will tell you, they go in there, they replant. So what what do you think needs to be done? Is it change of federal law to, to reinvigorate it, or is it something that the state needs to work on? Uh, well, I think it's both state and federal. <laughs> uh, but I think the federal is a much bigger mess. Because um, I think the state kind of wants to bring well, some of that revenue e- Even if the state doesn't want to, there's no real legal obligation like there is on the federal side. The federal government throughout the previous ONC agreement in right around 1991 under Clinton. And I think one way at least that you could fix that is making the ONC laws equal to the Endangered Species Act so that the Endangered Species Act doesn't just supersede the ONC laws that had been in agreement for over 70 years. And I think if you could make them work in concert with that so that there's still a minimum of 500 million board feet being harvested on ONC lands while still trying to protect the spotted owl, um, I think that would be a good compromise because right now I think we're doing maybe 270 million board feet, which is almost half of the previous mandatory minimum and what I think about a fifth of the um, rate of sustainability, which is 1.2 billion. And it's just, it's not good for anybody in the timber industry, any of these logging towns in Southern Oregon that are all dying off all the counties in Southern Oregon that are going bankrupt because they don't have ONC money to offset the lack of property taxes because the federal government owns all this land and doesn't pay them anything for it. And some of the education money that's spent on on that too. So. Absolutely. Um, I, I personally think that the most endangered species is the one that we don't really take care of, and that's us, you know, <laughs> the, the human species. Um, so let's go to the Second Amendment rights there. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm a fan. I mean, you know, concealed carry, I think, is a great thing for, for responsible people. Um, how do you feel about the, the expansion into, you know, the AK-47s, the M-16s and AR-15s and stuff like that? Well, I think it's a very slippery slope because if you actually look at, for instance, like the 1994 assault weapons ban, it didn't decrease crime at all. They only banned AK-47s and AR-15s, which frankly, is just banning a gun based on how it looks. Uh, functionally, an AR-15 is no different than, say, a Mini-14, but yet that was still legal under the 94 assault weapons ban. Well, and yet if anybody knows, uh, like a Ruger 1022, you put a 50 or 100-round clip in a 1022, and you can pull the trigger just as fast and, and well, throw absolutely. rounds out. I mean, even I, though it's a lower caliber, but still. Yeah, I, but I mean, the point is that they ban these guns based on just looks, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what they're talking about now. If you want to ban all semi-automatic rifles, then let's have that discussion. But mm-hmm. don't say you just want to ban AK-47s and AR-15s, because right. that's just stupid. You're just picking out the guns that look the scariest to ban, and it's not, got nothing to do with functionality. And I think that's the thing that really upsets gun owners, is the fact that the people trying to ban guns don't really know anything about them. If you want to have an intelligent discussion on what guns to ban, I'll, I'll still disagree with you, but right. at least I can't say you don't know what you're talking about, right. and that's not the case right now. Well, I mean, you look at, in a situation where a, a semi-automatic weapon is brought into a school or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, someone with concealed carry that is on premises there that is there might only have a 9 millimeter, but he can stop that assault ban, I mean, that assault gun from firing. So he doesn't need an assault gun to fight the assault gun. Well, that's the thing. Uh, People 
get the impression because of the media and a lot of misconceptions that assault weapons, which they actually aren't, are somehow more lethal. And they're not. A semi-automatic AR-15 is no more lethal, in my opinion, than a 9mm handgun. It just can shoot a little bit farther. It's not any more deadly, especially the caliber. I mean, it's a varmint caliber. It's not even meant for shooting things the size of people. So there's this misconception based on the media that they're somehow more lethal, and they're really not. I mean, nobody wants to talk about banning AR-10s, for instance, and they're probably twice as lethal as an AR-15. But again, people in the media and people on the other side don't really know a lot about guns, so they don't realize that. So they just want to ban AR-15s and AK-47s, and it's just it kind of doesn't really it doesn't really give much credibility to their argument when they don't really know what they want to ban. So I think that what I hear you're saying is that education needs to be one of the primary things when people are talking about what to do with the Second Amendment. I mean, it has, there has to be education on knowing the differences. Absolutely. And I mean, even like banning bump stocks, um, people just don't really – I just think people don't realize – what these guns are actually capable of. Um, I mean, again, a lot of misconceptions in the media. People think assault weapons are fully automatic. They think fully automatic weapons are still legal in the United States, and they're not. And I think there just needs to be more education on the side trying to ban them because a lot of the things that they think are legal are already illegal, and they're wanting to put more restrictions on responsible gun owners that are only going to affect responsible gun owners and not affect the actual criminals that are committing these heinous crimes and shootings. And that's the real people we need to worry about. We don't need to make it harder for veterans and people trying to defend their families to get guns. We need to make it harder for criminals to get guns, and that's what they're overlooking. And that's one of the things back, I think, in the 70s, they even they – even, one of the lines was – you know, if you take away the guns, only criminals will have guns. Well, you yeah, know, I, I do believe that's absolutely true. And I mean, look at Mexico. They only have one legal gun store in the entire country, and they have tons of gun violence. I mean, they just outshot the uh, Mexican military, the cartel did, and they had fully automatic um, saws. They had uh, rocket launchers. They had Browning 50 caliber machine guns. Yeah. And they're not getting those from the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we got that, that's another whole issue altogether. So you're running for Congress, and um, well, gee, I guess I guess that pretty much says it. There, you're running for Congress. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but thank you for your service, and uh, you know, uh, get the word out there. I'm sure you'll have a, a fun time going through the, the district and, and letting everybody know what's going on. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely exciting. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. A lot of thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. That's our November edition of Our Town. We'll be back next month with more. Well, it'll be jingalinga time. (laughs) The holiday season will be upon us, and we'll probably have some holiday-themed interviews coming up in the December edition of Our Town. Joining me now is Alan Twombly. He is the uh, owner of our local H&R Block, and we're going to talk some taxes, tax changes, things are going on. But first, let's go ahead and and, and get rid of the, the big thing. You've moved your offices, or your offices are in process of moving. I hopefully will have it moved by Monday. By from, Monday? From the old location over by the Safeway Gas Pumps to over in the Dunes. Um, Village, Village Center. Center, yeah, which is right there by between Dollar Tree and Subway. Yeah. 
And so at True Value's there too. Easy so. to find. Much much more parking available there too, a and much more, more space. Oh yeah. Within the within the office itself. Well, last year I only had five tax desks because that's all I would fit in the old location. And I, I bet you we turned away 200 customers because we just didn't have the room. And so I'm hiring additional staff and I've got um, 11 tax desks this year. So I won't have 11 tax, but I'm always, you know, I want to build for growth. You're always looking. <laughs> yeah. You're always looking. So let's talk about some of the things that happened. The, the biggest one that affected me this last year, biggest tax change, was the deletion of the penalty for not having health care insurance. Right. This year, there's no penalty for not having health insurance. Um, and there's a lot of people that should still go through the exchange if it's if there's because they get a, a supplement, so they don't have to pay for health insurance or it's very low. So if they, you fall into that category, it's great to go ahead and get it. But there's no penalty anymore for not having it, which somebody some people it was fifteen hundred two thousand dollar penalties or more for not having health insurance. Well, and the problem was the people that affected the most are the ones that didn't have enough money to buy insurance in the first place. So then they're they're getting penalized again. Because they don't make enough money. Right. And that was, I mean, in some cases, it was a lot cheaper, even though the penalty was like, you know, $1,500, $2,000, it was cheaper to pay the penalty than to pay for health insurance they couldn't afford in the first place. Now, that's that's one of the major changes. Uh, aside from that, um, as far as overall tax law, there not a whole lot has happened in the last year? Not really, not that, that much. Because the last big one was 1986, and then this last year we had another major one. And so it'll probably, this year there might be, we'll see that here toward the end, they haven't really mentioned anything yet, but they, sometimes there's some fine-tuning and some little tweaking. One thing that we noticed a lot last year is a lot of people that used to itemize, because now at the standard deduction, federal went from $12,000 standard deduction for single or 24 for married. They said, oh, I don't have to, I'm not going to keep track of, all my expenses, like medical expenses and stuff like that, because it doesn't matter anymore. You know what? Probably 85% of the people that itemized before on Oregon still itemized because Oregon standard deduction didn't go up. So they could still save thousands of dollars on their Oregon return. So they still want to itemize Oregon only. So make sure that you at least look at it. So people should still be saving their receipts and yeah. saving everything. Medical that they expenses. Use. Oregon, had, if you're over 65, you don't have that 7.5% or 10% limitation on your medical expenses, stuff like that. So it it can really, it doesn't hurt to at least look at it and put it in your return, your all your ex, your deductions. That's right. Things. Put it in there anyway. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt. If it doesn't do anything, it does, it's not going to cost you anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, one other change that was affects a, a much smaller membership in the population is the, the alimony and alimony support right. uh, ruling. How did that, how's that so down. if your if your divorce was before twenty first of twenty nineteen, then you'd still get to deduct the alimony if you're paying it, and you'd still have to claim it if you're receiving it. But if it, the divorce was after that, then you don't get it deducted if you're paying it, and you don't have to claim it as income if you're receiving it. So that's a big one for some people that they used to be able to write that off their alimony payments, and then the person receiving it had to claim it as income. But now it's they don't get it deducted, and the person receiving it gets it. It's like gifts. Now, recently you were in uh, D.C. I was. And you were you were working with uh, some members of Congress. Tell me a little bit about uh, what what transpired there. Yeah, I, I did what's called a fly-in. It's the sixth time I've, I've flown into D.C. And I, I, it's always consumer protection, some sort of thing that I'm trying to get through. And I went with about 25 other friends that I know, and we fly in there. And I went September 23rd to the 26th. And what we, we were there for this time was it's House Resolution 3466, 
which were trying to amend the IRS code to clarify the authority of the IRS. And some areas, oh, we don't want to give IRS more authority. <laughs> what this is for, right now, there's about probably 760,000 preparers in the United States. About 40 of those, thousand of those, IRS knows are bad players. They either have, they either do tax returns horribly, or they do identity theft, or all sorts of things like that. IRS is not legally allowed to revoke their preparer's license. Wow. And so we're working with we went the House, and we got seven people to sign on as co-sponsors for the bill. Um, one of them that went on there was one that I actually met with because they said it made sense. And so hopefully, and that's in the House right now, but it hasn't gone all the way through, and hopefully it gets to the House, and then it has to go on to the Senate. And the Senate has to look at it. I met with a couple senators. In fact, Ron Wyden's aide I met with, not Ron himself this time. A lot of times I do meet with Ron. And they're, they're looking to co-sponsor it once it gets over to the Senate side. And I don't think we should have a problem getting this through because we're just trying to, like I said, get it so that IRS has the ability to say, hey, Alan, you're a bad player, pull your license or whatever. Because mm-hmm. we shouldn't be able, they should be able to take that away. And they, they, legal, they don't have the legal right to take away that, which is silly. It sounds crazy, but they don't even have the legal right to do background checks on tax wow. repairs, which we're trying to work on that too, where they can do a background check on every person that when we re- register, it's called a PTIN, a prepare tax identification number. And every year we renew that. And that's what we're talking about, giving the IRS the right to poll if you're not qualified to be looking. Because when you, I look at your tax return, I look at everything. I have your where you work, your mortgage, right. your social security number, your kids' names. I have everything mm. I'd need to go have a heyday. So, yeah, that, that's probably not a good thing then if someone is a little shady. Right. Now, yeah. I'll tell you, in Oregon, we're fairly well protected because we have what's called the Oregon Board of Tax Practitioners. And I served on the board for six years on that. And they're able to pull Oregon licenses and stuff. But the rest of the United States doesn't have that that protect, the protection to the, to the extent that we do. There's only five states in the United States, I think, that actually have licenses for tax repairs. So like in the state of Washington, I could go up, hang up a shingle and not know anything about taxes and say, hey, yeah, wait, I'll, I mean, um, George, I'll do your tax return for you. <laughs> and I may know a heck of a lot less than you do, but you wouldn't even know that. Right. But in Oregon, you look for LTC or an enrolled agent is a good one when you go nationally. An enrolled agent is somebody that's set before the IRS taking a test, which is like a three, four hour test. And it's not easy. Yeah. Let's but see I, how for, much you know about taxes, right? Right. Yeah. And like I'm an enrolled agent. I've been one since about 97, 98. So. Now, how has how has tax preparation changed in the in the dawning of the computer age where people can get a software or a program? I mean, even H and R Block has a, oh, a software do. program. If the demand's there, you you try to fill the niche. They still say about seventy percent of the returns done online have some level of error to them. Um, just it's garbage in, garbage out. It could be the best software in the world, and if you don't understand what the question's asking. It, how can you answer it correctly? And um, it's sometimes difficult to get an answer on the question you're you're looking for. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, well, maybe if I could get this clarified, I could understand it. And yet with a live preparer, you just go and say, hey, this is what I'm looking at. Well, and that's the thing about a live preparer, too. Say, let's say, George, I'm sitting there talking to you, and you say, oh, yeah, it's just me living at home, and oh, I'm taking care of my mom, too. She's, you know— she had to, she can't live by herself anymore, so now she lives at my house with me. Well, so you have an extra dependent. So now you're head of household. Yeah. Some people think head of household is only have dependent children, but also qualifies for your parents. So all of a sudden I say, George, you're head of household, and you get to claim your 
your mother as a dependent on your tax return as long as you're paying over 50% of support, which part of your, your the fair rental value of your home counts towards support mm-hmm. and your half your utilities and all the stuff divided by the number of people. So sometimes just that interview process of actually sitting with somebody, right. there's things we go, oh, what? You, you do this? You're, you're a doctor here in Florence? Did you know you qualify for the special um, rural medical credit of $5,000 on your tax return? So because they're trying to get physicians into rural areas. Right. So there's things that when we sit with them, like, well, where's your, your credit? You know, you, you should have a, you know, like I said, it's $5,000 credit for people in the medical community in rural areas. So like Reedsport, Florence, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, but unless you sit with somebody back in the day, when I first started, you're saying, how has it changed? When I start first started about 21 years ago, people, we would, people would come in every three years and have us do their return. And it's because you go back in amend two years back. Mm. So they'd come in and see if they missed anything. Oh, wow. How long has that been around? And we'll say, oh, it's been around for two years. And they'd go back and amend their return. So at least every three years, they do a quality check. And then they'd see what changes, what we did different than what they were doing. But people stopped doing that. And I don't know why. I mean, but they don't just, they just didn't realize. They think the software is doing everything right. Mm. But there's a qualified business income deduction where the businesses got up to 20% of their income taken off their income. You know, that, that's a new one last year. That was a really big change. Um, if you're a business owner, you could save tons of money. And a lot of this you don't know unless you're talking with someone. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, anything else really quickly before we get going? We got, we're just about out of time. No, I think that's good. I hope everybody comes to see me. I'll be at 1680 right. Highway 126, the new plaza. And I don't know when we're going to do it yet, but we're going to do a grand opening, and we'll have hopefully free food and stuff like that, and I'll do some giveaways and things like well, that. Well, I'm sure we'll let them know when that happens. Sounds great. Thank Alan Twombly, h Block. Thank you so much. Thank you, George. And coming up next, we'll be speaking with Lori Severance, Saw Valley Fire and Rescue. We'll talk about the new mental health support team.